Uh, welcome back from launch. Uh, I am Mark Calabria. I direct Cato's work on financial regulation, which often covers the area of real estate, particularly housing and mortgage markets. Uh, I'm also honored to serve as the moderator for this uh, afternoon's panel, covering the connections between immigration and real estate. Now, I suspect that every panel, or at least every moderator, took the view that, of course, theirs was the most crucial and most obviously connected to immigration. Uh, I'm going to make the argument in a, for just a second, for a couple of seconds, rather, of why I think uh, the impact of immigration on real estate is probably the most important impact in terms of the economy. Uh, perhaps most obviously, the construction sector has long been a major employer of immigrants. Uh, and it's also the part of our history that many of our very signature structures, if you think about the Brooklyn Bridge, the Empire State Building, the Erie Canal, or for those of you in Washington, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal that runs through Georgetown, are to me maybe most impressive at all, the Transcontinental Railroad, all of these signature accomplishments were built primarily with immigrant labor, whether it was Irish, Italian, Chinese, and countless others. So I don't think it would be an exaggeration to claim that America was quite literally built by immigrants. Uh, even today, foreign-born workers constitute one in four construction workers. Contrary to, I think, popular perception, only about half, half of these hail from Mexico. Many actually come from Asia and Europe. Uh, nor is immigration limited to unskilled labor. An outright majority of such occupations as plasterers, stucco masons, are foreign-born. Nearly half of roofers and drywall installers are foreign-born. A third of brick and stone masons are foreign-born. These are highly skilled occupations. Uh, try doing it yourself sometime if you doubt it. Uh, trends in construction employment also appear highly correlated with movements into and out of the United States. We heard earlier about the negative net immigration in recent years. Uh, I would suggest that this is a direct result of the housing bust. Of course, construction is only one dimension of real estate. Immigration directly impacts the demand for real estate and can change the very dynamic of local real estate markets. Uh, when I mention phrases like Little Italy or Chinatown, you immediately know what I mean. It doesn't require explanation. Uh, and gives, paints a very vivid picture in one's mind uh, of neighborhood dynamics. Uh, of course, immigration was also a direct contributor to the rise of tenement housing, which in my opinion ultimately gave rise to a movement for higher quality housing, setting the stage in the 1930s for the birth of federal housing policy, uh, which of course saw its precursors in cities like New York and Chicago. So you could make a very strong argument that immigration itself is what gave birth to what our former federal housing policy looks like today. Our panel, however, will be a little less historical, except, of course, for the last decade or so. Our panel is going to look at recent trends, especially in light of the recent housing boom and bust, which, again, coincided with a significant boom in immigration. We are extremely fortunate to have three distinguished speakers here today to offer their findings and views on the connections between immigration and real estate. Our first speaker will be Jacob Vigdor, the Daniel J. Evans Professor of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington. For those of you who are unclear on it, that's the other Washington, the one with the good coffee and a little bit more rain, although I think we probably rival you in humidity. Um, in addition to his many journal publications, Victor is also the author of the book, From Immigrants to Americans, The Rise and Fall of Fitting In. Our next speaker would be Gary Painter, who serves as the professor uh, in the Sol Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California, as well as the director of social policy in the Sol Price Center for Social Innovation. His numerous journal publications, particularly on the topics of household formation, housing in the Great Recession, have contributed immensely to our understanding of housing dynamics during the recent crisis. Our final speaker, Susan Wachter, is the Albert Sussman Professor of Real Estate and Professor of Finance at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as Professor of City and Regional Planning at the University of Pennsylvania. I was fortunate the first day to first get to know Susan, God, it feels like 20 years ago, when she was Assistant Secretary for Policy Development and Research at the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development. I've been even more fortunate that since that time, she's been willing to share her insights and her work uh, on federal mortgage policy and housing policy. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say if there's an important policy question you could think about about the mortgage and housing market, Susan has probably written something on it somewhere. Quite prolific, as both as all of our panelists are. Uh, so with that, I want to turn over the podium to Jacob. 
Thank you. And uh, while I am here uh, from the other Washington today, I, I do have to, to set the record straight that, that the humidity is just no contest. I mean, you know, there's a difference between being damp and being humid. And if anybody is unclear on that, I, you can come home with me. Um, so uh, the, the work that I'm going to talk about today is part of a, of a project that I worked on uh, that looking a little bit broadly at, at the impact of immigration on communities. Uh, across the United States. Uh, so I'll, I, I have only a short amount of time to, to talk to you today, so I'll, I'll sort of speed through things. Um, so we're going to start out by talking about a conceptual framework here. I'll tell you about the data that, that came up and, uh, and the, some of the things we have to do to the data to understand what the impact is of immigration on local communities. And I'm looking specifically, what is the impact of immigration to a local community on the housing market? What happens to the price of housing in the community? Uh, what happens to uh, manufacturing employment in that community? When immigrants move in, do natives leave or do natives arrive? Uh, I, I found a way to get some traction on those questions using data for counties in the United States uh, between the period of 1970 to, to 2010. Uh, so that is what we're going to talk about. The stuff that I'm going to talk to you about today is building on the work of, of quite a few other people, some of whom are, are with us uh, here today. Um, so a lot of work. We heard about immigration in the labor market earlier today. And uh, this I'm, I'm sort of following up a couple of other studies of immigration in the housing market that looked at, at slightly broader levels, at, at state-level data or metropolitan area-level data. I'm going down to the level of the county today. OK, let's talk about immigration and housing. So it's a basic story of supply and demand. I mean, that's the basic way we teach this, right? So there's demand for housing, and there's a supply of housing. And, and you know, you could draw these little supply and demand curves in various different ways. But the basic idea is this. Um, immigration increases the number of people who need a place to live. Uh, so the impact on the housing market is fairly straightforward. You're going to have some combination of more houses being built, so impacts on the construction sector. Uh, and increased prices. And depending on exactly how easy it is to build new structures in a location, you might have more effects on the price side or the quantity side. But that's, the, that's what we would call the direct effect. In addition to these direct effects of, of uh, immigration on the housing market, there could be what we might call indirect effects. So the arrival of immigrants in a community could lead there. Some people might perceive that community as less desirable. Uh, and Albert Seitz has, has referred to this phenomenon as native flight. So natives might look at immigrants coming into a neighborhood or a community and decide they don't want to live there, and that would reduce demand for housing in that neighborhood. Um, there could also be effects occurring if, if natives are displaced in the labor market. The indirect effects of immigrants arriving in the, into a housing market could also be positive. So it could mean better opportunities for the, the, for the uh, local residents. And there could also be positive impacts on local quality of life. We'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of these things. I'm going to end up telling you that these positive impacts look like they are very important. That one thing that immigrants have done, they have gone into a lot of declining neighborhoods of cities, uh, city, neighborhoods that as of the 1970s or 1980s would have been declining, are, have now stabilized in large part because they are repopulated with immigrant families. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, housing prices, and it's important to take a second to think about this, whether, whether it's good to have higher housing prices. Okay. If you own your home, yes, uh, higher housing prices means more wealth for you. Uh, that's, that's kind of unambiguously a good thing. If you're a renter or someone who's trying to turn into a homeowner, higher prices are kind of a mixed bag. Uh, so you know, it may mean more money out of pocket. But generally speaking, we think you're paying that more money because what you're renting has become more valuable. And so that's, that, that's a little bit more of a, a complicated thing. If we were doing this analysis from a strict cost-benefit perspective, we would refer to a lot of these things as transfers. Uh, that the, the price going up, yes, it does mean that uh, people's wealth has gone up, but at the expense of uh, the renters who might see that their rents go up, that sort of thing. Okay, to just push straight forward into the analysis that I did, I got population and housing data at the county level uh, for just about every county in the United States from 1970 to 2010. I had to toss out Alaska. Alaska doesn't really have counties. Um, there are a couple of cases where counties shift boundaries over time. Those are also out of the analysis. I end up with a sample of 3,109 counties or county equivalents. You've got some independent cities in places like Virginia, parishes in Louisiana, et cetera, and so forth. Um, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be asking the question, what happens in these counties as a function of the foreign-born population in those counties? And I'm going to look at the impact of foreign-born population 
on the native population uh, and home values. And I'm going to try to control for a number of characteristics, characteristics of the housing stock and some county fixed effects and some year fixed effects to try to, to sort of take out any kind of long-term differences between counties. So I'm not directly comparing, say, Manhattan with small counties in, in rural Iowa. Uh, the county fixed effect means that I'm doing this analysis, studying over time what happens to a community as immigrants enter that community. Um, you know, we, I, I, got, I have a couple slides here that really get into the weeds. There's a lot of detail about functional form here, like how do I want to be modeling this? I'm going to sort of wave my hands a little bit here. If you can read fast, you'll see it's all there. But the, the, the short version of it is that I, I looked to see what kind of model best fits the data, and I went with that. It ends up being a basic linear model. Surprise, surprise. So we're going to see what is the impact of immigration on housing prices. Um, and the result is going to be something on the order of when one immigrant moves into a county, housing prices change by X. Okay, and X is measured in dollars and cents. So it, it makes it kind of uh, intuitive, and everything is inflation adjusted, so it's, it's uh, pretty easy to, to explain. I'm also going to be incorporating some data from county business patterns to look at what's happening to manufacturing employment uh, across counties. Um, ma uh, county business patterns... Uh, Places that don't have a whole lot of manufacturing employment would be excluded from this analysis, so that leaves me with about 2,000 counties. Okay, Now, a lot of people who do this kind of work, that you, you run into this problem that you see immigrants move in a community and housing prices go up well. Is that a case of immigrants causing housing prices to go up, or is it just the case that immigrants are moving to places that are successful? And they're not going to places where the population is declining, where the, the housing market is, is in a downward spiral. So I'm pursuing a strategy of trying to get around that chicken and egg problem by identifying a source of immigration into a county that really has little to do with economic conditions on the ground. It's a well-established pattern that immigrants tend to move to counties where there are already immigrants in the population. So I'm going to be using a strategy that's been used for at least 20 years now in uh, economics of immigration to sort of predict where immigrants will go as a function of where immigrants were distributed as of 1970. Okay, um, So you can attribute this back to uh, some work that was done in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, there's, there's a lot more details uh, about it uh, here on this slide. If you can read fast, you can get the, the, the whole story. But basically, it's the same strategy that has been used repeatedly in a lot of published work on immigration. Um, I'm doing very, something very similar with the manufacturing analysis. It's just a little bit different there because instead of looking at something like housing prices as an outcome, it's manufacturing jobs. I only have data on that for 1970 and 2010. For the housing price analysis, I'm using data for 70, 80, 90, 2000, 2010, examining that over time. And so, okay, now we're ready to get to some results, and here's what the results look like. The first thing that I'm going to show you is that I can predict where immigrants are going to go as a function of where immigrants were in 1970. Um, and I have a, a, what I call the shift share-based forecast. So this is, this is my variable that predicts where immigrants will locate as a function of where immigrants lived in 1970. So you ask the question, where will we find, say, immigrants from Honduras in the year 2010, you go back to 1970, there were not necessarily a whole lot of immigrants from Honduras in 1970, but what counties in the United States were they located in? And the prediction is that you're going to find a particular concentration of Hondurans in the counties that had a lot of Hondurans as of 1970. And what we find is that this is not a perfect predictor. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about immigrants going to new destinations. So one of the phenomena that we see is that immigrants uh, in the past 10 or 20 years have gone to places like uh, the southeast and the intermountain west, places that did not have very large immigrant populations as of 1970. So this forecast kind of messes up with those types of counties, but it's really good about forecasting the growth of the immigrant population in places like California, in places like the northeast, in places like Florida, and in, in parts of the Midwest that were a little bit more uh, urbanized. Um, so it works pretty well. The strategy uh, kind of does what it's supposed to do. And so here is the, the result of, of greatest interest for this particular panel. When I look to see what is the impact of immigration on a housing market, I get that little coefficient up there at the top that is 0.116. So interpretation, when one immigrant moves into a county, 
on average, housing prices in that county go up by 11.6 cents. Okay? 11.6 cents uh, sounds like a, a pretty small number, and it's a pretty small number. But I'm going to uh, go through a little calculation with you in a little while that will show how this 11.6 cents turns into, I think, about $3.6 trillion. That is the total impact of immigration on housing wealth in the United States uh, taken from this analysis. Um, I have quite a few different control variables in there that are maybe less interesting for the purposes of this discussion. So, you know, if you take a picture of the slide, you can, um, you know, peruse them at your leisure uh, later on. Um, when an immigrant moves into a county, this analysis suggests that the native-born population increases. So it is not that an increase in the immigrant population chases the native-born away. Natives are actually drawn to counties that receive immigrants. And we're going to interpret this as evidence that immigration into a county actually increases the amount of economic opportunity in, in that county. It's, it's consistent with this idea that there is not a finite amount of, of jobs to be had in any given place. Particularly in an economy that's focused on the service sector, you need people to serve in order to have employment opportunities. Okay. Um, this 423, so it suggests that if you, if you bring 1,000 immigrants into a county, you get 423 extra natives. So some of those natives are the children of foreign-born. So if you do an adjustment based on the, the childbearing rate of these immigrants, the, the net impact on the native population is about 270. So 1,000 immigrants into a county forecast 270 additional natives will move to that county. Okay. Um, a manufacturing analysis, so I, this is just showing you that the strategy of predicting where immigrants will go as a basis of where they were in 1970 continues to, to work in this analysis. And here's what we get. When you get 1,000 foreign-born individuals moving into a county, uh, the number of manufacturing jobs increases by about 46. Okay, so immigration, now this is in the context of an economy where manufacturing jobs in general have been declining, but what this is saying is that that, that, that loss of, of manufacturing jobs is lessened uh, in counties that receive more immigrants. So, so th this is in context, we got 8% of the workforce in manufacturing and uh, just under 70% of the adult population in the workforce. So this suggests that the number of manufacturing jobs that is created and or preserved actually exceeds the, the number of foreign-born people who we would expect to take those jobs. Okay. So second slide on implications here. Um, adding 1,000 immigrants uh, draws in 270 natives. That's something that we talked about a little bit already. Okay. So, so here's the way we want to think about the housing price result. So if 1,000 immigrants move into a community, the forecast here is that median home values will increase by about $116. So and now it's time to do a little bit of back of the envelope calculation. The average immigrant resides in a county with 800,000 housing units. So you know most immigrants live in larger urban areas where there are more housing units. Okay. So if you think about it, one immigrant moving into a county with 800,000 housing units, they're raising the median price by 11.6 cents, 11.6 cents times 800,000 is $90,000. So you can think of this as every immigrant moving into a community, basically their dowry to the community uh, is the effect on the community's housing wealth, with them, which amounts to a grand total of $90,000. Now, $90,000 per immigrant, if we have approximately 40 million immigrants in the United States, you just have to take those numbers and multiply them, 40 million times 90,000 uh, gives you your $3.7 trillion impact of immigration on housing wealth. Um, and that's, that I should be clear about this, that this is counting both owner-occupied and rental housing. Um, but that's, that's what it is. And it's, it's a, once again, a fairly straightforward story, that there are more people who, who want housing units. Uh, I should mention that this is this analysis here is not really looking at the impact on the construction sector, which would be added onto this. And of course, those additional housing units might, we, we'd expect them to sort of reduce the impact on prices. But if you just look at the impact on prices, this is the implication you get, $3.7 trillion. And that's that. Thank you. Well, I'd also like to thank Alex and Cato for having us here today. Um, and 
I think what's uh, interesting about actually all, all the panels have slightly different slices and slightly different definitions. Um, I should say that one of the things that I want to emphasize and I think is true in the panel at large here is that when we're talking about immigrants, we're talking about immigrants of whatever visa status with authorization, without, and so forth. So in, in this panel, it's, it's really talking about people who have come from other places. Um, it's my hope that in, in my talk, although in a you know, gathering like this, it might be impossible to have this goal, that maybe I'll share one new fact or one new piece of the literature that's been synthesized in a way that you haven't seen before. Um, whether I succeed or not, you can tell me during the break. But there are some really interesting facts in terms of how we might think about immigrants in the housing market. And as our moderator opened up today, one of the aspects and where I've done most of my work is in the area of understanding immigrant housing demand and understanding how it may or may not be similar to native-born housing demand. And so that's really where I'm going to focus most of my attention. And the, the nice thing is that my colleagues are very complimentary in terms of where our expertise and our research agendas have, have gone. So what I'm going to do, um, or, or just kind of posit these these first three uh, salient features in thinking about immigrants and housing markets is, number one, housing markets are, is, is not a national phenomenon. Housing markets are local. So we have to think about them as a collection of, of localities. We have to keep in mind that immigration trends can change rapidly. We saw a lot of that in the data this morning. And the word immigrant is not a homogeneous category by any means, and so we have to keep that in mind. And there's multiple dimensions of which I will only show a few of those dimensions in understanding immigrant housing demand here. So I'm going to begin by showing some trends in immigration flows across the U.S. Um, the maps are, are somewhat large on the screen behind me. This is one of those really nice screens that eats laser pointers, so unfortunately I, I can't show you anything in particular. But let me tell you what these four maps are going to be, and you can kind of just look for the shades. So the first map is mapping out the percentage of the foreign-born uh, uh, population as a percent of the total. And the different shades are different quintiles, so it's five equal buckets. Um, that are created of where there are the largest concentrations in 1980. So not surprisingly, the immigrant gateway cities in Brownsville, Texas, so you have your New York, Miamis, Californias, et cetera, are the darkest shades. And as we know, uh, over time, there's been migration across the U.S., and so what I didn't do is change the quintile buckets, so the dark shades, so things just get darker over time. You don't, I haven't changed the definitions, and you'll see that in all these maps. So in 1990, you still saw it was mostly in the southwest and, again, California, Florida, New York. But then by 2000 and 2010, there is substantial migration throughout the U.S. So nothing too new there. Um, the percent Latino foreign-born population, so that's one dimension of perhaps there's, a, there's some, could be some differences, can also be shown in the same way, and perhaps not surprisingly, because up until very recently, Latino migrants or the foreign-born from Latin America were the largest group, the, the map pretty much approximates what you saw in the previous, where the dark shades start off in these traditional immigrant gateways. But by 2000 and 2010, the migration had spread. The Asian population has a similar kind of, again, spreading, but if you want to look very closely here in this legend, back in 1980, to be in the top quintile, you only had to have a, a, a population of 4.4% Asian immigrants. So these quintiles are very much compressed. But the one that I find most interesting in this series of maps is to think about where are the new immigrants as a percent of the total foreign-born population. So if you look in 1980 and 1990, you see that you know, most immigrants, in fact, were new. So you see lots of dark shades. Um, and when you shift to 2000 and 2010, you see that most immigrants that are new are no longer in immigrant gateways. So the places like California, Florida, Texas, and so forth, these are very light shades, meaning less than 20% of the immigrant population in these places are new. That says a lot about the political background and so forth, because if you're in places where there's lots of new immigrants, there might be different needs or challenges or opportunities. And so that's something to keep in mind. Um, one of the things until really, I mean, I guess I, most of my career has been focused on immigrants and housing markets. And it was because I, I thought the immigrants had completely been ignored in the housing literature. So, you know, as a young aspiring assistant professor, one needs to make your mark in something. 
And so I showed up in the 1990s and realized they had been largely ignored. And, and I'm not sure exactly why they had been ignored, but one of the narratives that I had heard is that they're, well, they're transient, they come in, they come out, so they're not really like permanent contributors to housing demand in one place because you just never know if they're gonna stay. Um, one fact that I have been surprised at, but again, not everybody might be, is that immigrants are now no longer more mobile than native populations and in fact are less mobile across state borders once they arrive. So that means that immigrant populations are much more stable than native-born populations. So this was quite shocking to me when I started to look at the data. This is data from the current population survey. When I started doing my work, as you can see there, just the underlying mobility of the immigrant population, one-year mobility was close to 20%, quite high. Native populations, you know, closer to 15. This includes both intra-urban moves and inter-urban moves or interstate moves. But at the end of the period, the green line is now below the others. Okay, so this is one fact that when I actually got to the data, I, I knew this was happening, but I didn't realize how much it had happened. So this is just overall mobility. If you then look at long distance moves, you see whether you're looking at interstate moves. Again, these are facts that people have been writing about, just that overall mobility in the US has been declining. But overall mobility among immigrants has been declining even faster. So that's, that's something important to keep in mind, that inter-county mobility rates, you can see that for immigrants, it's actually about a percentage point or more or less than for natives. So immigrants, when they come into the community, they're there for the duration. And that's something, again, that I don't think a lot of, uh, or at least I didn't realize, but again, you know, some of you may have known these by looking at these data before. Now, some, some of the differences have to do with things like their, people's um, skill level. So low-skilled workers are much less likely to migrate, do long-distance moves. So this is interstate migration. So if you look at the scales, you can see that the low-skilled worker scale starts around 2% and drops down to 1% in these one-year migrations. If you look at the high-skilled workers, you know, it kind of started for, again, immigrants were around 3.2%, and it declined down to about 2.5%. Um, and then another way of kind of cutting the immigrant population, this has been important in a lot of my work on housing, is to think about the arrival cohort. So if you're a brand-new immigrant from 0 to 5 years, you can see that the mobility rates are much higher than the other cohorts. Again, this is just looking at interstate. We could look at others. And then as you have been in the country for a while, especially if you look at the 10 plus uh, cohort, then you're going to be only 1% move across state lines per year. So these are these differences that we need to think about. So I'm going to kind of continue to go move quickly here and, and look forward to some you know, Q&A in our, in our opportunities to discuss later. Um, but in addition to these mobility patterns, one of the things that, you know, obviously I've done in a lot of my career and I just cite one of the papers I've done is just noted that they really are critical uh, components, these immigrant populations are, to housing markets. And Jake's you know, paper is obviously one to, to emphasize that as well. They're also integrating more rapidly than, than past generations of immigrants. So these are really important facts to keep in mind. So if we're trying to measure changes in housing demand, Jake already gave you the Econ 101 supply and demand shift. So I don't have to redraw the picture, fortunately. So the order of, of, of speaking worked out quite well. But basically, you could think about it in terms of shifts in population, people. Immigrants are people. They bring families. They demand housing units, right? Just like if you had increases in birth rates here in the US. But there's also the type of, of kind of housing demand that's important to kind of think about. One is you could think about, are people going to be owning or renting? That's what I mean by shifts in housing tenure. And they also might reorganize families in different ways, which would be things like shifts in headship is the term I'm going to use and define in a moment. And the shifts in headship, I'll, I'll, let me just pause and I'll define that in just a second. I'm going to look at just a set of cities, um, and not all metropolitan areas, but for analytical convenience, because I had a couple of papers where I took this particular sample um, just to show differences. So the established gateways, everyone knows what those are, the San Francisco's, LA, San Diego, New York, Chicago, and Miami. <laughs> then there's the emerging gateways, which are places like the Denver's and Las Vegas's and Atlanta's, et cetera. And then there's small metro areas. And so there's about, in this sample, there's a total of 80 metropolitan areas where we can track trends over time. So the first thing is the shifts in population. So the shifts in population, you can see that from 2000, so this is the last decade and a half, the percent immigrant in established gateways has been almost stable from 33% to 34%. 
Um, and much of the changes in the established gateways, as you saw in the previous map, it happened in the 80s and 90s. Um, the emerging gateways has increased from 16 to 21%, and the small metros from 9 to 11.8%. And the overall immigrant population had grown to about 16.3% in the U.S. But again, what's different, especially in those established gateways, is what's, who are the percent new immigrants? Here, I'm defining new immigrant as uh, been in the country less than 10 years. And you can see how that's declined rapidly in established gateways and declined slightly um, in the other places. Um, but the recent entry among immigrants, um, if you look at those, you can see even much more rapidly, a rapid decline, so coming from other countries. Okay, now I'm going to go to home ownership, which is one of those markers that certainly we report out all the time. Um, home ownership, I'm going to give a definition. It might seem obvious, but it's important if you're thinking about housing demand to understand that when we report home ownership, just like if we report unemployment, we have a definition. And here it's the number of occupied housing units that are headed by the owners divided by the number of independent household heads. Okay, and you'll see the difference in this ratio when we talk about the headship rate. Okay, so it doesn't capture the number of potential households that could exist in a housing market. So what's happened to home ownership trends in the U.S.? Well, I've just spit all these charts in terms of U.S. born and immigrants. And we all know what's happened in terms of the housing crisis and how the home ownership rate in the U.S. has fallen from, you know, 68% down to 63% um, in this sample. And you can see that that's happened in all of the places. What's interesting, though, is if you look at immigrant home ownership over this period, in every case, immigrant home ownership from the year 2000 to the year 2014 has risen. Okay, it went up, it came down, but now we're, it's higher than it was. Now, of course, it's lower than U.S.-born households, but U.S.-born households are now, you know, a decade and a half later at a much lower rate of home ownership. So it's important to keep that in mind. If you look at Asian immigrants and Latino immigrants, the home ownership rates of Asians are higher than Latinos. The trends are actually pretty similar in terms of that in the year 2000 compared to the year 2014, where in many cases for Latinos, not established gateways, but for the other places, homeownership rates are now higher. Um, I guess small. I guess only emerging is it actually. But it's, so they're pretty similar. For Asians, again, starting at the beginning to the end, they're also higher. So that's one measure of housing demand. Another way of thinking about housing demand is how many potential households could be out in the housing market demanding units, whether they're rental or owner-occupied. And this is the ratio of identified household heads divided by all adults. So this ratio is one where we had evidence and people's perception are that immigrants are much more likely to have multiple adults living together, whether it's grandparents living with families or whether it's you know, bringing in extended family members and so forth. And so when you look at headship rates of immigrants, they have tended to be much lower than natives over a long periods of time, from 1980 to 2000. Um, at its most basic level, occupying housing units is a way of kind of measuring housing demand. The most surprising picture to me actually was this one, and it wasn't the immigrant one. It's the U.S.-born household one. The headship rates of U.S.-born households have fallen since 2000, the first part of the decade, they fell because of increasing challenges with housing affordability. Okay, then you have the crisis and the kind of baby boom, gener I'm sorry, the, the millennial generation becoming young adults but not leaving. Then you have the recovery. They're still not leaving. What's really interesting is at the end of the period, the headship rates of U.S.-born households are almost the same now as immigrants. So it's not the kind of old way of thinking of immigrants are assimilating, becoming more like they did more populations and so forth. Here you have the opposite happening with respect to housing demand. Part of this has to do with housing affordability concerns and there's a whole other bunch of things we could talk about. But this is a really interesting fact that, that headship now is almost the same. So if you look at Asians and Latinos, they have very similar headship rates. Um, let me just kind of conclude with a few things as I'm at the end of my time. Um, talking about the literature as well as, as what we've seen here in terms of the data. So the immigrant rates of homeownership tend to rise to those of comparable native-born households within five to ten years of entering the country. So that's if you're looking at the margin of housing demand, at, which is homeownership. 
it doesn't take that long for immigrants to look a lot like the natives. Um, however, prior to the most recent period, immigrant families tended to be in larger household sizes. But as you saw, the gap has fallen tremendously. Um, immigrants tend to have higher home ownership where there are more vibrant immigrant networks. And you can measure that lots of different ways, um, which we don't have time to talk about today. Um, things like greater English proficiency tends to lead to higher home ownership, except interestingly in gateways where bilingual immigrants do better or have higher home ownership. So that might, might signal accessing multiple housing markets. But just to conclude, because I'm out of time, I mean, I think we can say quite clearly, based on the first presentation and this one, that the contributions of immigrants to housing demand has always been important. But I think what's really interesting now is I can, you can make an argument that it's really no different than native housing demand. So you don't have to kind of think, about what are, how are immigrants making choices in the housing market? And how's everybody else? It's, it's, just, it's, it's all of us. And we can talk about these spillover benefits to neighborhoods and so forth as well, um, but I will end here and turn it over to my colleague. Thank you. Thank you to Cato for inviting us here today. It's my pleasure to follow the two distinguished speakers whom we've heard. And my comments are uh, also complementary to theirs as well. The work that I'm describing today, How Does Immigration Impact Neighborhoods, is based on a joint paper uh, co-authored with Albert Saiz, Immigration in the Neighborhood. And in that paper, we test for whether immigration affects residential segregation in neighborhoods. So how do we proceed? We test for native preferences, because it's through native preferences that we will be able to determine whether immigration affects segregation. We directly measure native flight and white flight. We then look at immigration uh, more by the components of immigration, characteristics of immigrants. And finally, we discuss the implications for access to opportunity and social integration. To get ahead of our findings, in general, we find that immigration does lead to more segregated neighborhoods. And that, therefore, that raises issues of social integration, which I will discuss towards the end. Uh, so the question we're asking is whether uh, do neighborhood housing prices rise or fall with immigration? And I will explain why we're asking that question. We are asking other questions as well, but this is the key one. Uh, first of all, why are we asking that question when it's been asked and answered? Well, actually, it hasn't been asked and answered. The question that has been asked and answered is what impact do immigration and immigrants have on housing prices in MSAs and in counties? And you heard from Jake Vigdor a bit earlier, and then you heard from Gary Painter that immigrants are like others of us, and when you increase demand, uh, since supply doesn't react completely, well, then the result is going to be high, higher housing prices. And that is in the literature for metropolitan areas, and thanks to the work of Jake Vigder for counties, that yes, an increase in immigrants, which increases, therefore, demand for housing in the area, increases housing prices. In fact, paper by my co-author establishes a very neat relationship of a 1% increase of immigrants to a metro area increases housing prices by 1%, which is totally consistent with what we heard earlier. But we're asking something different. We're asking the impact on segregation, and now it's really not supply and demand, it's more general equilibrium. And that is, what is the impact of immigration on neighborhood rents and prices? And to give you a, a sense of the order of magnitude here, I think that um, uh, Jake was talking about uh, counties with average population, households of population is 800,000, almost a million. We're talking about census tracts with 4,000. So 4,000 versus order of magnitude, order of magnitude different. Uh, because we're using census tracts as our neighborhood because we can track census tracts. And the question that we are addressing then is whether movement in of immigrants leads to higher housing prices or lower housing prices. Now, we know immigrants cluster. They cluster due to advantages of proximity to people in the same national, ethnic, or linguistic group, and we heard some results about that. 
But because immigrants cluster, this alone does not imply higher housing prices in neighborhoods and rents doesn't apply higher rents in neighborhoods. As long as there are mobile native price arbitrageurs, then housing prices may not go up at all in neighborhoods as people move to uh, other areas uh, within the MSA. Overall, MSA prices may go up and do, but not necessarily neighborhoods. And of course, MSAs can expand. So again, within existing neighborhoods, prices can go up or down or not be affected at all. However, a negative association between local housing prices, census housing prices, and share of immigrants is an unequivocal, unequivocal sign of native preferences for segregation. House prices cannot be lower in a locale unless there is a perceived negative compensating deferential. Otherwise, opportunistic neighbors, uh, opportunistic natives move in until the price gap is bridged. So our strategy, we test for how changes in neighborhoods immigrant share are related to changes in house values in census tracts. If natives perceive immigrant enclaves as less desirable places to live, a relative negative association between neighborhood immigration density and housing values will be observed all else equal, but not everything else is equal. So for example, there are reverse causality uh, potential explanations for a negative uh, relationship between prices and immigrant uh, and migration. It may be reverse causality that's causing this. As we've heard, immigrants may be moving to affordable places. So it's not that housing prices are falling due to immigrants coming in, but it's immigrants are attracted to where, afford, where housing is affordable. But we exclude that explanation of uh, reverse causality by setting up an instrument similar to uh, what Jake Vigdor does, uh, predicting future uh, where, where immigrants are likely to be not based at all on the characteristics, the current characteristics of, um, of, of census tracts. We also are looking at constant quality house prices. So we're, uh, we are abstracting from changes in uh, uh, housing price quality. We're just looking at the pure index of prices for the neighborhood. Although we do have evidence of the other results as well, which I will uh, point to and return to. So I guess our pointer is not working. Uh, but um, here's our methodology. Changing quality of the housing stock is not what we're looking at, although it has implications for that. We're not directly looking at that. I'll come back to that. Of course, there are omitted variables, but with our instrument, we're able to deal with that. Uh, we're not looking at reverse causality, that is, changing housing values causing immigrants. We are looking at increased new immigrants in the neighborhood, and we'll look at changes in quality of education outcomes, ethnicity, and socioeconomic aspects of immigrants' impact on changing housing values in neighborhoods. Here are our results. Don't expect you to see it. Take a screenshot, look at it later. Uh, but they're here, and I will go over the uh, set of results. We do two sets of results. Uh, again, uh, to, I'll do it quickly and uh, be very uh, superficial, but it's, you can go to the paper for more details. Ordinary least squares with lots of controls. Uh, uh, 50 controls um, is in order to deal with all of these other variables that may impact neighborhood controls, prior conditions of neighborhoods, prior immigration, et cetera. And then we also do this instrument, which I'll describe to you in a moment. The first three regressions. The first three regressions are ordinary least squares with controls, and the next three are uh, instrument variables. So um, our end, our, just to go to the bottom line, what we find is an area where the share of the foreign-born uh, increases from 0 to 30 percent, house values are about 6 percent lower, uh, so which is not a small impact. It's actually rather large. So you can see the, oh, here it is, the linear relationship, um, change in foreign-born from 0 to 0.3, equal to 3 over here. Housing prices log, but is down about uh, the absolute is down six percent when you uh, recalculate the logs. The instrument variable approach is basically uh, similar to the uh, approach described earlier, so I'll skip over it very quickly. It's just where immigrants are likely to be drawn. They're likely to be drawn to A. 
because it's been surrounded by other immigrant neighborhoods, A will become more immigrant in T after T minus 1 as compared to B and C. This is the math of the gravity model. And again, I'm going to skip through it in the uh, time constraints. Interestingly enough, the IV results are very similar to the results um, with controls. Uh, let me go actually to the results again and make one point. So the results are highly consistent, about minus 0.2. And this, again, is linear relationship and about an increase of 0 to 30%, decline of 6% in prices. Uh, that's consistent with this 0 0.2, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.2. Notice when we do not have controls in column 1, and this is OLS, not instrument variables, the impact is twice as large which to me indicates there's reverse causality and there are omitted variables which are endogenously related. And I'll come back to the implications of that uh, shortly. Uh, where is this link strongest? And we look at initial conditions and in areas that were whiter and richer, this impact are uh, movement out of uh, white flight and native flight is stronger. So in initially higher priced neighborhoods and uh, initially uh, wider neighborhoods. Then we look at a direct measurement of native outflows, white flight, native flight. And again, we do this with instruments and without. And again, to um, move ahead uh, very quickly, the uh, results, uh, here they are. But uh, to summarize them, the results in columns one and five uh, are look positive, actually consistent uh, with a positive impact. Uh, so it looks um, as though when migrants come, immigrants come in, um, actually uh, we, ha we have um, uh, an increase in, in uh, 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 other residents. But uh, columns one and five are, as it turns out, our results are driven by the top 5% of census tracts where the population, total population, more than doubles. So then when it excludes this extremely fast-growing, likely outlying census tracts with new development, we find in the other 95% that uh, we have, and also with median regressions, we find that immigrant arrivals are associated with absolute decreases in native populations, especially uh, white population. So now let's unbundle the results. Is it the foreignness of immigrants that causes this segregation? And the uh, answer to that, in short, is no. Uh, we test by a different um, source of where immigrants are coming from. And the results are all over the place. There's no consistency negative. But then we also sort immigrants by uh, educational um, call, uh, uh, achievements, and particularly dropouts. And we also look at, so we look at a dropout rate, and we look at ethnicity and race. And indeed, the results are very much driven by ethnicity and race of immigrants. Um, uh, African-American uh, status is a black immigrant shock is very large negative. Uh, Non-Hispanic white immigrant shock is actually positive. Uh, so the results are, have, and uh, most importantly, the dropout immigrant shock is extremely uh, significant and negative. So the table shows uh, uh, so the table shows uh, regressions uh, the same uh, uh, variable that we were following, and uh, in sum, then with all these results, natives are willing to pay a premium to live in predominantly native neighborhoods. Uh, immigration shocks are associated with absolute decreases in the level of native population in general in areas with higher initial density of white residents. Uh, or higher housing prices, the impact on prices is stronger. And these results are driven more by social and economic status rather than foreignness uh, per se. So let me ask the bigger question, bigger questions. Will immigration always lead to lower local neighborhood housing prices and therefore higher levels of segregation? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, first of all, our results are uh, driven mostly by neighborhoods where, where were wider and higher priced to begin with. 
So immigration had little impact on relative home values in areas where socioeconomic sorting had already taken place. That is, in areas that were already minority and already low house prices, native, uh, in fact, immigration did, was not associated with um, a, a decline in prices. This is consistent with uh, local revitalization in relatively poor minority neighborhoods associated with immigration, which is exactly what we heard from Jake Vigdor. Uh, we also, our, our results are driven by native preferences, and those may change over time uh, as uh, we move to a majority minority nation. And finally, um, growing areas. Uh, the new developments in general growing areas uh, attract a growing share of a city's population, both native and immigrants, so they're not subject to this flight. So now let's uh, 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 discuss implications very broadly. Uh, the concern here is, despite the fact that now we do have urban revitalization, so the concern is less and sorting has already <laughs> happened, and these data are from 1990 and 2000, so maybe we are in a different period. But the different period with urban revitalization is still associated nationally with concentration of poverty. So we know that from other work that poverty Neighborhood poverty has become more concentrated and sorting by income has increased in America. This is true across the board for immigrants and non-immigrants. And we also know that social mobility of children is heavily impacted by characteristics of the residential neighborhood where they grow up. And we also know now that housing affordability, and this is completely consistent with the work that Gary Painter pointed to, that housing affordability is slowing down mobility across the board. So the question is whether immigrants, low-income immigrants, as well as low-income non-immigrants will be increasingly segregated in areas which lack opportunity. And that's the conclusion. I think I've already said that, and I thank you. Well, before we open it up to, to questions, there was a fair amount of uh, overlap between the papers, so I wanted to give each of the panelists, if they wanted to make any comments on the other panelists' papers quite quickly, uh, you're under no obligation to do so. Well, if nobody wants to, Gary, did you? Well, you know, because the, the papers by Jake and Susan were, were similar. It's, it, it probably the, struck the audience that maybe the, they appear to be conflicting in different ways and so forth, and so maybe they could speak to it. But since I didn't write either one of them, one of the things that strikes me is, is some work that Jake has done with different colleagues on, on segregation, and, and there's been a bunch of papers out there that actually show that, that white households will pay a premium for homogeneity in, in majority white neighborhoods, and so finding what Susan has found is, is just kind of the converse of that. And maybe Jake could comment and see if I've interpreted that literature correct. Um, yeah, well, Gary, you, you said what I was planning to say. Oh, okay. So yeah, I think you did, you did a great job. Um, so um, yeah, I, so the, the work that I did establishes that housing prices within a county uh, will increase with immigration. But counties are big places, as Susan pointed out, uh, and I, I don't have the data to be able to say, do they go up uniformly across a county? Take a county like L.A. County. It's very large, lots of different parts of it, and they don't necessarily always move in, in lockstep, all the neighborhoods with each other. And so I think Susan's work sort of points out that you know a, an important phenomenon to bear in mind is that part of the price increase phenomenon may be a situation where you have these increasing price hurdles to move in to the, the predominantly white and native neighborhoods. That's an important phenomenon. And uh, I, I know we economists can sometimes uh, get focused on the aggregates, and it seems to me an important message here is that uh, just like you always hear in real estate, location, 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 uh, it does matter. And at the level of aggregation, uh, makes a big difference. I, I want to ask uh, two questions and then throw it to the audience. Um, my first question, which gets to the question partly about decline in mobility, uh, are there differences we're seeing between cities, areas that are relatively, um, uh, well, as the economists would say, inelastic supply or difficult to build, as the layman would say, 
there, there seem to be differences there. And then my second question, and I'm going to give these two questions to everyone, is was there something different about the recent boom and bust? I know Jacob's data, for instance, goes back and looks. Uh, but what we've seen was not necessarily broken down by does the 80s look like the 90s look like the 2000s. So maybe I'll just start at the end, Gary. And uh, first one, does the supply conditions in the local area seem to matter? And was this time around different? So I'll try to be careful, as academics tend to, and say that I haven't actually addressed that particular hypothesis directly. And so I want to be cautious about any kind of implication. What we, ought, what we do know is that high-skilled workers, or at least I should say what I do know, given work that I've done not presented here, is that only kind of high-skilled workers are likely to make those long-distance moves to the inelastic places. You're not seeing low-skilled workers making those moves to inelastic places. And so... That is a fact that you, you do observe there. But one of the things just to keep in mind linking to this morning is that when, when the immigration spigot, if you will, was cut off in terms of new immigrants moving into the U.S., um, and instead, as, as Doug mentioned, we actually have a net negative Mexican migration, what, one of the things that's happening is that there's just not nearly as many new arrivals. And so that is another kind of damper on mobility overall. Jake, if you want to add sure, to sure. So I'll say a couple things. So in terms of um, the the impacts that you see on prices, I, I think I might have mentioned this, but it, it bears repeating that that there are some places where it's 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 easy to build, uh, and that might be a function of availability of land, but it also has a lot to do with with regulations, uh, zoning laws in some parts of the country make it very difficult to expand the stock of housing. In those parts of the country, you're going to see more of a price impact than a construction impact when, when uh, new people move to a community. Uh, in other parts of the country where there's more available land and easier uh, regulations, you're going to see more of a quantity impact, less than price. In, in terms of uh, things being different, you know, I, using census data from 2000 and 2010, if you think about it, the bubble and the bust uh, kind of fall not entirely with, within that interval, but I, the, the fact that I was using data 10 years apart meant that a lot of those short-run dynamics of the buildup and, and the drop uh, kind of were missing from my data. But, but nonetheless, you could definitely see that a lot of the, the communities that were heavily impacted by the housing bust, like the inland areas of, of California, for example, uh, South Florida, uh, these are areas that had a large immigrant population. And so a lot of the homeowners who were caught up in that were foreign-born. So I, I will comment on the uh, follow on the wealth, uh, because we've done some work on that. Absolutely, wealth of uh, immigrant households was hit more because, um, especially Hispanic uh, households, had more of their wealth in housing. But I th I'd like to take your question and take it one step farther, because we're doing these econometric studies, which rely on data, data that's all in place, we're not looking at what's happening right now, although of course it has implications for what's right happening right now. What I think is interesting is that housing prices and rents are increasing relative to CPI and to wages and income at a very rapid rate and faster than they ever had, and more persistently than, so that we're, in terms of rents, we're far higher than we were in 2006, far higher than we were in 2000, and they keep on increasing, although there's a, they're likely to increase at a lower rate this year relative to inflation, and of course wages are increasing somewhat this year, so there's a better balance there. But this is in the absence of an increase in immigrants. So the issue for affordability and the issue for the ability to move and mobility for immigrants and for low-income populations. Of course, immigrants aren't always low-income populations, but across the board for low-skilled populations. This is a challenge that's going to be uh, our challenge as a nation for integrating populations with low skills and for low-skilled populations that are native. So maybe if I can um, rephrase that in one way. I, I think some of the concern one often hears about immigration and housing markets is, is, is somewhat a concern about displacement and, and, and competition effect. And I think as we heard earlier panel and as we've been reminded on this panel, the net immigration recently has been negative, yet we've still seen very strong increases in rents uh, suggesting that it's something else other than the immigration. I don't know if I see an intern with a microphone around here, so until I do, uh, I'm going to continue to ask some questions myself before we... Here's a question. Uh, do we have a, there we go. Uh, 
Question in the back? Uh, and if you could uh, identify yourself and affiliation and please raise your question in the form of a question. Uh, yes, I'm Dan Griswold. I'm with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, immigration and crime has been in the news uh, just this week. And actually, the I think it was uh, uh, Gary that mentioned the National Academy of Science study last year documented that immigrants are connected with lower crime rates. And it came right out and said, Immigrant neighborhoods have lower crime rates than comparable non-immigrant neighborhoods. I just wondered if that was factored in at all. Obviously, lower crime neighborhoods, everything equal, the housing prices will be higher because they're more desirable neighborhoods. Have you factored in at all the impact that immigrants have, the positive impact they have on crime rates? Uh, and what would that do to your analysis if it was factored in? In short, it is in our analysis, and in spite of that, which is an absolutely uh, accepted fact, uh, we, we do find these results. So, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll put in there, I did a, an analysis, I had precinct-level data on crime for New York City from the period about 1990 to uh, 2010, 2012 or so. It's a period where crime dropped dramatically in New York City. Um, and lots of people have their pet explanations for why it was, but criminologists are, are still kind of puzzled about this. Um, if you look at the precincts in New York where crime dropped the most, they happen to be connected to the neighborhoods where the foreign-born population increased the most. So I think there is a really – it's not just that, that, that foreign-born people themselves are not coming to the United States to, to commit crimes. They're, they're coming here to work. Uh, it's not just a function of their own behavior. It's a function of stabilizing neighborhoods where the vacancy rates have been very high. You had parts of the Bronx uh, that, that, you know, the drug use was rampant. Uh, you had all sorts of, of problems, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with all sorts of social ills. And the, the reoccupation of those neighborhoods, the cleaning up of those neighborhoods had a profound impact on them. They, you know, to, to Susan's point, they still might not be places where your white middle-class household wants to live. But they've turned around, and I think it's an important part of the story. In my, in my own work, I've looked more at how that process, that dynamic that you described, would lead to changes in home ownership rate and or headship. And so what I found in a fairly complicated model, not cited here, is that places like South L.A., for instance, if crime fell, would see huge increases in black home ownership in those places as well. So what was happening in, in the African-American community was that once people moved to middle class and so forth, they were going to the Inland Empire to buy, as opposed to these neighborhoods. And so the margin of having lower crime rates actually not only will affect house prices, but also affect the type of choice you make with your housing tenure. So that's where my work has interacted with this question. Uh, question here in the back. My name is David Crossland. Um, my question relates to uh, the role of real estate agents. Back in the early 70s, I uh, was a civil rights lawyer in Atlanta and brought the first blockbusting suit against a large real estate company, which was steering black uh, prospective buyers into lower middle-income uh, white neighborhoods, causing white flight out of those neighborhoods, jacking up the prices initially in those neighborhoods, causing uh, an increase in the overall uh, market, I suppose, for, uh, for real estate, and that those white uh, flight uh, owners then bought other houses elsewhere for more. Um, to what extent do you see or have you considered the role of real estate agents in steering people into uh, foreign nationals, into uh, all white or homogeneous neighborhoods for the purpose of causing, playing upon their fears and causing them to flee those neighborhoods and therefore uh, make more money for the real estate agents. I, I accept that. I think that was outside of the scope of any of the papers, but if anybody would like to comment. I'll just say it's, it's, it's become a more complicated world. Uh, so that I think that, that, that some degree of discrimination continues to go on. I was involved in a, in a case with the DOJ a couple of years ago uh, involving a landlord in Koreatown in LA. And so I got to know a lot about the, the real estate market in Koreatown, where there is a lot of steering and a lot of discriminatory, discriminatory behavior. 
Uh, but in a lot of cases, it is immigrant groups themselves that are trying to preserve the ethnic identity of their buildings or their neighborhoods. So it, while there may be some situations where it, there are certain immigrants who have a difficult time being shown units in a particular neighborhood, there are also immigrants on the other side of the coin. So it's, it's very complicated. Well, I think we have time for one more question. So we'll from the front here. Uh, I'll, I'll note that our, while um, the microphone is uh, coming up, that I know our authors are uh, be around a little bit. So if you want to come up and ask about arbitrage and OLS, uh, I think Susan will be happy to give you a little bit of a lecture. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about uh, redevelopment and gentrification. Uh, and I think the speakers kind of mentioned it kind of in the middle of all their data. But um, it seems to me just anecdotally around here, there were some um, um, immigrant neighborhoods that were uh, in the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, redeveloped and have now become sort of, you know, the young professionals' neighborhoods. And it seems to me that the prices in those neighborhoods have changed not because of the population composition, but because of the redevelopment that uh, pre preceded the shift in population. There's, so, there's no doubt about it. There's a sea shift going on of uh, city, inner, inner city neighborhoods across America, and often these are immigrant neighborhoods where prices are rising with redevelopment. That's happening right now, and that is going to change the whole scale. The, uh, whether that makes my result, our results, mine and Albert Sias' results, actually no longer applicable because now we're talking about revitalizing neighborhoods where there are immigrants it certainly makes it makes and we do talk about uh, new development and neighborhoods where sorting quote unquote has already happened it's completely consistent with what you're saying in the meantime however so new immigrants who are coming although net they're not right now or simply low income households generally who are looking for housing increasingly are being pushed out so to uh, enclaves that are poor in the suburbs or in smaller, poor cities. Well, thank you. Uh, I want to thank the audience. I want to thank our, our panelists, too. I know two of our panelists came from the other side of the country, so I, I, I really appreciate that. And uh, Philly's not quite a distance, but I still appreciate that. <laughs> it's just a company down. Uh, so I want to thank you, and uh, we're going to turn it over to the next panel. <laughs>